Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 115 of Real Blend, a podcast that knows this steak doesn't exist, but after nine years... Do you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> That's a reference that most people will probably get. And it has to do with an amazing story that you're going to hear later in this week's episode because Joey Pantoliano, the great Joey Pants, is joining the Real Blend podcast to talk about not just the Bad Boys franchise, but his amazing steak scene from The Matrix. <laughs> and for that, I have to thank Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Kevin, hi. How are you doing today? Hi. Uh, I honestly was just thinking about how fun that was to get his answer on that because I I rewatched the scene right after it and you're going to hear it in the interview. But Sean brings up a, a very fun moment we had with Joe Panagliano. We've been doing all these interviews and it, it's crazy to talk to these people in their homes and we'll get into it later on. But Sean Sean uh, brings up a really funny moment. So he was fantastic. Joining us as well, uh, Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Hello, Jakey. How are you? Hey, handsome. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm Sean O'Connell, the managing director of Cinema Blood. You guys should know that by now. Um, <laughs> later on in the episode, we're going to have not only the interview with Joey Pants, uh, we're going to talk about the new film Extraction that is hitting Netflix uh, and stars Chris Hemsworth and is brought to us by uh, two guys you might know uh, from previous works that they've done before, like Community uh, on NBC. Uh, or You, Joe... Me, and Dupree. That was a really <laughs> big film for them. It was. Huge. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, wish that they would catch a break. I know. Yeah. Listen, you know, every once in a while, the light shines on the underdog. And uh, maybe Joe and Anthony Russo will, will make a movie that some of you guys see. So uh, maybe, maybe Extraction's just the cherry on top. You know what I mean? You know, it might you just know. be. <laughs> this could be. That could be their end game, Kevin. To yeah. ultimately get people God, to see I wish Chevy. I could snap you never and you know. guys would disappear. I, I, I just don't want those two guys, since they're brothers, to ever end up in a civil war together. You know what I mean? You just no, do not that want that be, to happen. Because and, it would last forever. They may call it an infinity war. Or if it lasts forever and then some, it could enter It could enter into the winter and they could become oh, soldiers. Oh my God. I don't know so which half of you, know. you I want to disappear most right now. <laughs> well, I want to give everybody a reminder that we have a community page over on our a Facebook community page. <laughs> Can we start Jinx, over? Jake. Jinx. <laughs> uh, there's Punch always red. a bunch of conversations going on over there that are triggered by the blenders, including polls. And especially with everybody in quarantine, they're figuring out some really interesting topics uh, to go back on, catching up on movies that they're recommending to each other. It's a lot of fun. So if you want to continue the experience of the Real Blend show, head over to the Real Blend podcast community on Facebook. We are also posting episodes on our YouTube page. As you can see, we are video streaming, uh, not live, but Gabe is cutting these up after the fact and then putting them up after the episodes go live. But you can find some of the bonus episodes that we've been doing because the guys mentioned that we've been doing a lot of interviews uh, in the in-between. It feels like we're working 
not that we're working harder necessarily, but we've had a lot of opportunities because talent has been available. So recently we've had Alicia Silverstone come on and talk about Clueless. We've had, I'm blanking on people, uh, Michael, Michael came Shannon came on to talk about his movie uh, that Barry has Sonnenfeld. recently come out. Barry Sonnenfeld came on and talked about his amazing book. Um, and we have a couple other interesting people to tease too. So uh, bookmark the uh, YouTube page and then follow along if you prefer to watch us as opposed to listen to us. Yeah, and if you're just finding us, I mean, like, that's the crazy part about it is we've been doing this show now for two years. And it's funny because we talk to the audience, uh, you know, because because we have so many listeners who've been listening to us for a long time. But if you ha- are just tuning in, Definitely find us on Real Blend on iTunes. Go back, find all the big interviews. Obviously, Sean just mentioned Barry Sonnenfeld. We've had everybody from Quentin Tarantino to Sam Mendes. And anybody listening to the show is like, oh, of course, Kevin, we already know that already. But, you know, you never know. We might get new viewers or listeners every single week. So tune Absolutely. in, find out more of our interviews on uh, on Apple and iTunes, Spotify, I believe, as well. So. This is a very special message that I want to send out to the Blender community, but to everyone who's listening to the show or watching the show on YouTube, we know that you guys have been asking us uh, for merchandise. And in the current world of uncertainty, uh, we really wanted to find a way for us to, as a community, uh, do something good, to do something special. So we've created a very special a Real Blend t-shirt that is now available, and we want to make this announcement as part of this show. Uh, all proceeds, everything that we earn from this show is going right to uh, the Will Rogers Pioneers Assistance Fund, which is set up to help theater and film exhibition workers who are currently in need. Obviously, the theater-going experience, as you guys know, is crucial uh, to this show. I mean, the thing that brought the three of us together was our love of going to the theater, talking about films. Uh, It's the reason that Real Blend exists. We understand that we think it's a big part of the reason why you guys listen to the show. So we thought this was a great way for us to give back to something uh, that all of us cherish. There are going to be uh, links to this new design. I can't wait to show you guys uh, what the design of the t-shirt looks like. Uh, People at at Cinema Blend's parent company, Gateway, worked hard on the design. It turned out really, really cool. Um, And so links are going to be If you're um, listening to it on a podcast, they'll be in the show notes uh, for this particular episode. If you happen to be watching this on YouTube, go down into the description. We'll have a link to the shirt uh, going to that. Again, I can't emphasize enough that we're not earning a single thing off of this. All of the proceeds going to Will Rogers uh, Pioneers Assistance Fund, which is set up to help uh, people who work in theaters. But it's a limited campaign. Um, That's the important thing about it is we want to make this shirt something special. Uh, something that stood out so that when people see you wearing it, they know that you did it as part of this a charitable fund that we set up to help Will Rogers. So it's going to last until Friday, May 8th. So follow the link. Uh, you can, uh, if you want to also make an additional donation, uh, the cost of the shirt. So a portion of the shirt will go to uh, the service that prints the shirt and then the rest, everything else goes right to Will Rogers. If in particular you wanted to donate a little bit extra to Will Rogers, I would just kind of recommend going to the Will Rogers uh, Pioneers Assistance Fund page. Age, because if you happen to make it while you're purchasing the shirt, the shirt, I just want to be upfront that the company uh, that is printing the shirt also takes a little bit of a portion of those proceeds. And we want to obviously get as much money into the Will Rogers Foundation as we can. So really excited about it. What do you guys think about the design of the shirt? And what I love about it is, and this is just, just, this is a completely genuine response. I want to buy one and I'm going to buy one. I'm going to, I'm going to buy multiple probably for my wife, Lauren, obviously for my parents and my brother. Uh, I just, I love the design of it. And the cool thing about it, as Sean said, is it is completely 
all going towards the Will Rogers, obviously with the process he just explained with Bonfire. And to me, it's cool because at the, uh, I've been doing this. So Lauren and I have actually been um, buying a lot of t-shirts and sweatshirts from people who are doing the exact same thing. And it's actually a really nice thing to know that you can get something cool, but at the end of the day, that money's going towards someone to help them. And obviously with movie theaters being closed down, you know, one of the things I've really found uh, interesting about the beginning of all of this was at the beginning, I felt like there were a lot of people who thought, you know, the idea of movies were trivial and the sense of we didn't think about the people who were working on the front lines of the production, but also the front lines at the movie theaters. Now, I say front lines because those are the people that are serving you your popcorn and your concessions and taking your tickets. They're editing your movies. They're promoting your films, the publicity teams. There are so many people who are tied to one single release of a movie. We just did an interview today and we dealt with three publicists alone to get <laughs> one interview done. Yeah. Um, and so you think about all these people who are involved in film and how we're all adapting right now, and that's why we're doing this. We're doing it because we want to give our audience a shirt, but we're really doing it because we want to support the movie theaters and the people who work in the industry. It's a very important thing to us. Uh, we are a very theatrically driven show, as Sean has said uh, multiple times, and I feel like this is a very important thing. I mean, we really, at the end of the day, we want to get money to the right people so that we can continue to go back to that normalcy that we all love and know. And honestly, I and, and and I know this isn't what it's about because it didn't really matter what the shirt looked like. I was going to buy a couple of them anyway because it's a great cause. But think it it, it looks so cool <laughs> when when Gabe sent us uh, what the shirt was going to look like. I, I got to be honest, I have a drawer full of shirts that have been produced for a good cause, and I bought them happily and thought it's a it's an amazing cause. Give me that shirt, I'll buy a couple. But like. They're not necessarily like the most like styly. They're, they're not something I'm really yeah. gonna like throw on to like a, I will actively wear this shirt. Right. I think it looks that cool. All the better that of course that the funds are going to a great cause. But it helps that the shirt looks really cool too. It's awesome. And we all we went back and forth a lot on the design and, yeah. and for people out there. You know, the, the behind the scenes of this show is very interesting because Gabe is, you know, we're always working on different things and different interviews. And that that design that you're eventually going to see is actually three, four or five steps away from the original design. It's actually kind of cool how we kind of came up with it uh, in that regard. And we'll get into more detail on that. But definitely, you know, as Sean said, check the show notes, check the show descriptions. Uh, we will also obviously drop a link on our Real Blend account and also yep. our own personal Twitter's <laughs> accounts and Cinema Blend. And I know uh, Gabe was talking about possibly getting links on the Cinema Blend website as well so there's a lot of different ways we're gonna we're gonna be putting this out there yeah. but again as sean said this is for a good cause we do not make a single dime personally off of this at all neither did the cinema blend it all is going to charity through that bonfire process and it'll be um limited so just remember you have until may 8th but we'll have plenty of opportunities to remind you guys uh, on the show and on social media as well too and if you want to give one uh to the hosts as a gift, <laughs> I want to remind you that Jake wears a boy's uh, size large. True. So, um, That's exactly right. That yeah, is true. So, so write that down. I'm, I'm, really, definitely really, buying, really I'm definitely getting a couple because like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you guys saw the Arnold ones. Arnold put out these shirts like called Stay Your Ass at Home or something like that. And it, it, I oh, bought, that's like, cool. I bought a huge that. hoodie with that on it. And the beauty of it is it's something that oh, I actually I want, want to wear because I love Arnold. And, and I also feel like it's great because the money's going towards charity. Like everything, the, the sweatshirt I'm wearing right now went to completely what to does charity. that say on it it's uh it, it, Lauren, favored nations yeah favored nations 
Oh, I mean, I'm not. This is not a plug. I'm not being paid by them or anything like that. But Lauren is. Oh, a I fan was. Of, asked. I asked. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I know. But Lauren is uh, a fan <laughs> of "To All the Boys I Loved Before" and the star mm. of that movie, Noah Centineo, who's you know, I guess she calls him the internet's boyfriend. Um, he's a uh, you know, he's kind of a big deal. He has a lot of followers on Instagram. So he put together this company uh, and these shirts and everything that that I'm wearing right now has gone to charity. We bought two of them. I bought the Arnold ones. I'll buy five real blend ones. So it's great that you can get something for it, but know it goes somewhere good, you know? I will see this Noah Santanagro, whoever, <laughs> and raise you, raise you one Timothy Chalamet for this internet's boyfriend. I'll, I'll tell you right. All right. So what's interesting about that <laughs> is I would argue that Chalamet is, is definitely up there, but Noah had that, had that, like that, that high school drama he put out. So to all the boys kind of hit that, certain audience i don't right. know if timothy's really hit that yet that like high school audience yet has he i feel like he do you think he has know. an older fan i feel base? like the difference between timothy and noah is that i know who timothy is timothy's a, <laughs> but timothy's a better actor i mean don't get me wrong i mean yeah. I, I don't know much about noah i mean he's a he's a he's a he's like a you know a teenage no he's a teenager but he's in these like high school drama type movies but timothy's obviously has shown better acting chops just but, wait till dune drops my friend right and then, yeah. Oh, we just lost Gabe. There he goes. We we just rocketed dis- off. We've discussed this in the show before, but I, I feel like Timothy Chalamet is the most famous, not famous person I've ever seen. <laughs> like, like he is so well known on the internet, and like when he posts something, his po- his posts are so engaging and so viral. But at the end of the day, my mom, I don't think my mom and dad or my grandparents know who Timothy Chalamet is. They he is don't. the he is the snakes on a plane of celebrities, like really <laughs> big on the internet. Right. And then no one knows who he is outside of that. Like Timothy Chalamet could walk through like Tyson's Corner Mall where I live and I don't think he would get stopped. Probably Maybe. Not, no. I, 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 but also it's funny. There's a lot of big actors that also I feel like fit into that. I think Matt Damon could walk through the mall with a hat on and not get. I feel like there's certain ones that can kind of go under low key. I really do. I'm going to make this a, a poll, but I didn't make it last week's poll. So we have one that we have to get to. Um, we asked you guys last week if you could have lived during a different decade just to watch the films of that decade on the big screen. And so this sort of ties into us um, lobbying very hard for the theatrical experience to come back. No, uh, this came from a text conversation that we were well, having. It did. Yeah, it did. We were having a text conversation about which movie were you asking? The 80s? Yeah, because I was I was having a uh, like a flashback. I was doing like some some eighties monster movies, and then I, I'd watched uh, uh, John Landis's American Werewolf in London, which right. just a fucking masterpiece. Rick Baker, the very first uh, best makeup Oscar, um, and it just got me thinking like how great some of these eighties monster movies would have been to see in theaters. And then the snowball started snowball started rolling of like all the other eighties movies that would have been great to see. I was like, oh my god, I wish I could have lived in the theater in the eighties. And then that's when I texted you guys, like, what decade do you wish you would have lived in? And I kept going back to a couple of other ones, but I, I got to go back to, because so many of my favorite films came out in the 80s. But you lived through the 80s, and then you're like, oh, it's not that great. It, I mean, it was fine. Um, fine? You saw dude. you saw Raiders? You saw two of the, the original Star Wars films? You saw uh, E.T.? Sure. You saw Back to the Future? All of Sean those films. Saw, Sean saw Gone with the Wind premiere. I did. I mean, that, that's how long I did the junket. <laughs> You and Patrick Stoner. <laughs> Me and Patrick Stoner sit, <laughs> sitting in folding chairs outside of a room. Remember that time Sean got a double slot with uh, Orson Welles for Citizen Kane? That was amazing. They shot it on 16 millimeter film. And, and it was like all the junket people at the time like, hey, can I go ahead of you? My, I got a carriage. My carriage leaves in 20, 30 minutes. <laughs> and I said, Mr. Welles, this is going to come out a month after the movie's opened. <laughs> so can I ask you about Rosebud? Did you ask him his favorite, uh, his favorite character directed by Christopher Nolan? <laughs> 
Citizen oh. Bane. You should have. Why did you bring that up, man? How could you not bring that up to him? So anyway, back to the poll. Uh, the, the 80s dominated oh, this yeah, poll. And I'm actually surprised the 80s dominated with 48% of the vote. And the reason why I say like it was fine is because for every one that you guys just mentioned, there was a, a wave of, of schlock. But that's just probably re- the case for any decade. Oh, sure. Of course. hundred percent. So, uh, this, okay. So the 80s got 48%. The 70s got 28%. The 50s got 15%. And then the 60s got 7.8, which I'm surprised at. But I'll give you, here's an example. From the 80s of um, a movie I revisited uh, for an anniversary called Just One of the Guys. Just One of the Guys turns 35 this year and it's coming out on Blu-ray. We're doing a lot of retrospective interviews on Cinema Blend. Have either of you two even heard of Just One of the Guys? No. Classic uh, 80s teen sex comedy came in the um, uh, the wave of films after Fast Time at Ridgemont High and you just you could not make that movie today. Like it just so a a girl at a high school is on the newspaper. Uh, there's two people who are getting a scholarship to go work for the newspaper in their town, and two boys get chosen. Uh, and she thinks that she's a better writer than they are. So to prove the point that they got picked because they were guys, she cuts her hair uh, and hides her body and goes to a rival high school to join the newspaper and submit her essay through the whole thing. Now, now all of that is preposterous. Right? So like, never been kissed, but uh, earlier or, or she's the man. Yes. Yeah. Or she's the man. Exactly. Or Mulan. But, dude, you know how we talk about movies yeah. that are um, time capsules of certain uh, yeah. generations that you just yeah. like every joke in this movie is so over the top sexist and misogynistic. It is. And I can in terms of comedy, I can take a lot of stuff as like a pass and just be like, oh, that was the 80s. This one is so far over the top that I'm stunned it even worked for back then. Sean, you should go back and watch Superbad now. Oh, really? It'll blow your mind. Really? Like, Super bad feels like a 70s, 80s comedy that just so happened to come out like this millennium. Super okay. bad has dialogue in it. And it's weird. And this is actually a, a maybe a discussion we could have another time uh, because it, it is a very fascinating discussion about movies that would not be made today. And we've kind of we discussed this before, like Tropic Thunder would have a hard time probably coming out yeah, um, yeah. and things like that, even though Robert Downey's character is making fun of that aspect of it. But it's interesting to me to think about Super bad kind of in the same way you're talking about it now. The dialogue in that film, I just can't imagine that coming out today. And it's funny because when I watched mid-90s, which I want to recommend if you have, people haven't seen it, uh, which is a jo- uh, Jonah Hill's oh, directed yeah. film about skateboarders. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. But the dialogue they use in that film is very similar to the style of dialogue Superbad uses. It's just a bunch of kids talking and saying things. But I wonder if, did, did he get away with it in mid-90s because it was called mid-90s? And that would just just time stamped the dialogue because we've had a lot of discussions on the show about like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And did did Tarantino hold back at all with the current state that we're in? Like, did he not put certain lines of dialogue in? So I'd be interested in talking to a filmmaker at some point as like a retrospective element. This idea of could you imagine making that film today and would you actually adjust it? Like, would, would Tarantino not Yeah, do put, you worry well, about I mean, but even, like, you, when you think about, like, Spielberg and, and E.T., where he, like, temporarily went back and erased all of the guns yeah, out of yeah, it yeah. and then went back and said, like, no, that was a mistake. Like, the movie was meant to be what the movie was. But, like, it's interesting how time has made even, like, the most masterful of filmmakers go back and go, Ugh. 
Yeah. Like, 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 do you, like, there's, I don't think Tarantino would be able to do the Jimmy scene in Pulp Fiction today. It just probably would not, not happen. And nope. I feel like, but it's interesting because when you go back and watch Pulp Fiction, um, it works in the context of the story. I mean, the, 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 the world we're living in with these bad people, it makes sense. Um, but obviously, Quentin Tarantino saying those words would not happen. So to your point, Sean, that 80s time capsule, I think we should get into a larger discussion later on about that idea. I mean, make a list of certain films and scenes that would just never happen today. Because oh. I feel like it's fascinating to, to look wow. down that path. I mean, I'm telling you right now, super bad. Put that on. You, first 20 there, minutes. There is, no. and I know we get it wrapped. There's a scene in The Office. Kevin, you've been watching The Office. Yeah. There's a whole plot line that I don't think you've gotten to yet because it's uh, season three. But there's a whole plot line that was on network television in like the early 2000s. And every time I yeah. watch it, I just go like, there's no way. It's crazy. There's no way that that would be even even acceptable. Like even if that were like right. on HBO, you'd sort of cringe and go, Ugh. and yeah, it was on yeah, network yeah. television. Yeah, I'd say um, right now the one word that hits me, and I'm not gonna obviously say the word, but the word that strikes me the most when I hear it in a movie now is the f word. Yeah, uh, that's, I, that's I won't what, say what it is. That's in the office. And then that's the, what it is. And then the yeah, r. It's and in then the, the office. And then the r word. Yeah, those, yeah, yeah. Those, yeah. those are two big two ones. Words were used so much in the '90s um, that it became a normal part of conversation. And I remember. Kids talking like that in high school. That was like it was it, it was acceptable at that I'm time to, to think speak of something on that. that I it was just weird. watched with Brendan too that used the R word so much, right? And um and and he said I can't think of what it was, but it was something like relatively normal from our past, a comedy of some sort. Yeah. And uh and he it's funny he didn't pick up on it because to him it's an it's an unusual word kind of thing. Yeah. But it's jarred me. I was just like, boy, they really. It takes I, me I'm out really, watching of the movie. Community for the first time, and and if you haven't seen it, like Chevy Chase's character is supposed to be kind of this racist, misogynistic, like out of touch old man. Yeah, yeah. But even like some of the things he says, like I get that that's yeah. who his character is. But even like he says things that like God, even that feels like but now every a time he says it, line. doesn't somebody follow up? Like usually, after, yeah, usually someone does, but but like, it sort of acknowledges what he said. Yeah. But it doesn't change the fact that those words were said on network television. Like it's yeah. just, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty shocking to hear to your point. Yeah. So. I'll pose this question because we're wrapping up. Not, I'm not going to answer it. I'm just going to pose it. Cause I want our, our listeners to tweet us your thoughts. Um, should a filmmaker not put certain dialogue in a film based on the times we're living in? Like, uh, for example, if, if Quentin Tarantino put out Pulp Fiction today, should he be required to remove that scene with Jimmy? Um, are filmmakers getting to the point where they're writing scripts or dialogue knowing that this is going to be acceptable or not acceptable? Or are they, are they just putting stuff out like normal and just hoping it lands? I, I can't imagine I, I mean, You can't predict not- how the world is going to change, and you definitely don't want, like... Uh, you can't censor art, right? You know, but, like one but, way or the other. But but that's the problem. Art will eventually be censored. That's what I'm saying. Like you cannot put out certain movies with certain lines of dialogue anymore, and you cannot write those lines of dialogue anymore with an mm. R word or an F word. And so, does that create a problem with the creativity of the script? That's all. I find that to yeah, be an interesting discussion. We will Just see. An interesting question. Yeah, I didn't think that this poll was going to lead us down to such an interesting <laughs> conversation. A relatively boring Welcome poll. Welcome to Real Blend. And yet, we found some way to make it really interesting. Sorry, so I, had, I find that interesting, sorry. No, I think that's great. Um, if you had told me uh, at any point over the course of my life that we would get to interview uh, Joe Pontigliano, 
but not then we've had this conversation on the on the podcast before when you get an actor and they are promoting the project that you really want to talk to them about it's that sweet spot where you can finally spend time talking about so for us it's bad boys dude Um, mine was walking in and and i feel bad saying this because i know jake uh you were you weren't there for this one but it's the one that i wish you were there for was walking into harrison ford's room at, at the force awakens with the confidence that I could ask him any Star Wars question I wanted to <laughs> without him getting mad at me. It yeah. was like this beautiful thing where like, I walk in the room, I look at his face, I'm like, it's Star Wars time, dude. Like, and, and it he doesn't mean he won't get mad at you, but at least you have a justifiable <laughs> excuse. Right. It was like, but but Sean brings up a beautiful point. Like when we got uh, the Russos for Endgame. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis that, for Halloween. And, and we're on that couch uh, with the Russos talking about the ending of Endgame and just to be there in that spot, like Sean talks about that sweet spot, you know you could talk about whatever you want, you know you can ask them whatever you want about it, and there's nothing that should scare you away from it. And that's really, to be honest, that he, he brings up a great point. That's, that's that sweet spot of interviewing that we rarely find sometimes. Well, we found it here because Joey Pants is joining us to talk about Bad Boys for Life, uh, his role as Captain Howard in all three Bad Boys films. Obviously, we branched out to talk about his work with uh, Nolan and Memento. Uh, we talked about the Matrix films. I mentioned Goonies ever so briefly, and we just got his insights into what's going on with the uh, the world of cinema nowadays. So uh, without further ado, the Real Blend interview with the great Joe Pantoliano. Right, well, first of all, uh, congratulations to you. I've been following these Bad Boys films for a long time, and I think at this point in time, I think the world could collectively use a woosaw. I think we 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 all definitely need that at this point. And I was, you know, this is a, a big film, and the third film was such a big surprise for a lot of people. A lot of things happened in this movie that people were shocked by. Um, obviously, Will Smith's character being shot early on in the film was a big surprise. But I wanted to talk to you about Captain Howard's death, because it, that character you've been playing, since 1995 this is a very big character it's a big part of bad boys what was it like for you emotionally to shoot that scene and i I know you've been playing characters and acting for a long time but is it kind of a goodbye to the character uh, as you shoot it do you you remember the day shooting that sequence uh you know it um let me see let me think about that 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 scene we shot we shot that scene in, in miami yeah and um so, so I had other stuff to shoot after we, you know, it wasn't like the last day and that's it to wrap on Joey. Uh, uh, actually some of the last stuff we shot, I believe was, was, was Will's, uh, character, Mike Larry getting shot we did on, oh, wow. on, on Ocean Avenue. So, so, uh, you know, um, I don't think I was, I, I, I feel like I was, you know, I had that really nice scene with my, with, with Mike Lowry, uh, with Will and I at the basketball court, which I, which I liked because we had a basketball scene in the first one. And, and, you know, even my, uh, my granddaughter's, uh, you know, as written, my, my granddaughter was, uh, was you know the the star player, and I and I said I, I think it'd be funny if she if she uh, she couldn't sh- uh, sh- shoot hoops like like Grandpa. Uh, you know, and then <laughs> I they, wish they gave her a cigar, Joe. She could have yeah, had a cigar in her mouth yeah, while she was shooting. <laughs> but uh, 
uh, you know, the uh, so we did that. And then we and then the next day we did that little walk and talk uh, where I'm invite, inviting him to my house for pizza. And then, you know, and then uh, the lights go out. Uh, for me, I was fascinated because you have to understand that the technology has has gotten so sophisticated. Uh, and and this was, you know, this was the, the crew that they had was uh, was like the Marvel, you know, a a list crew, special effects, all of those guys. So what they were using um and, and it's the first time I ever did a, 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 you know, a hit where you're not using squibs anymore. You just mm. play acting and then they, they CGI it in later, you know. So it was, it was just, I was just fascinated by the whole process. Uh, you know, it just kind of blew my mind. It just blew my mind. Joe, we are enormous fans of this entire franchise. Uh, we spend far too much time on our show debating uh, which one we prefer, the first one or the second one. Uh, we're divided pretty evenly down the camp. Um, I'm curious, as someone who transitioned from one to two uh, with Michael Bay, he, he's I see a huge difference from where he was in the first one to where he was in part two. By the time you guys reunited for the second one, which to me, it's longer, it's closer in scale to the type of movies he tends to like to direct. The first one's so streamlined and lean and stripped down. Did you see a difference in Bay when you guys got back together after he had done Pearl Harbor, Armageddon, The Rock, movies like that? Was he a different director or did you always see that in him on the first one too? In, in terms of working with him, you know, he was more, for me, it was more fun to be able to understand him. I mean, I, I, I don't think I... You know, I didn't. I didn't know him at the beginning. Um, it was his first feature. Mm. Um, you know, his style uh, was was a little um, abrupt to me. And you know, he was a yeller. And and uh, you know, once I got to know that's how he was. You know, mm. it, it, it was under. I had I had a little more understanding for him. But he but he was also you know, incredibly generous because he gave me the job to begin with. And uh, uh, in terms of what you're describing, I I, I didn't, uh, it was just like back in the saddle again. The same thing with, with working with Bilal um, and Adil, uh, you know, first time, uh, you know, big studio picture. They had, they had made three uh, impressive uh, films uh, in their, in Brussels, in their home country, Brussels, um, but not on a scale like this. So, uh, and the script, Bad Boys 3, the script was much tighter, you know, it was okay. on the page. Uh, with one and two, it was, there were certain sequences that were, that you knew that didn't need work and some of them did. And, uh, but uh, the, their DP uh, uh, on three was just amazing to see how he moved that camera uh, and the technology that supports the kind of moves that you just couldn't do five years ago. Uh, you know, so I, I for me, it's Bad Boys Three is the best of the of the franchise. 
Oh, listen to that. That's ah. breaking news right there. <laughs> uh, Joe, sorry, this is Jake and my camera's not working, so you can't see the, the third guy here. Um, but uh, you have worked with a lot of directors at the beginning of their career. Michael Bay on the first Bad Boys, uh, the Wachowskis on The Matrix, Chris, uh, Christopher Nolan for Memento. And I'm sort of curious, whenever you work with masterful directors that early on, can do you get a sense that, that they're about to go on to bigger things? Do you get a feel for, like, I'm working with someone who's about to blow up or do they still have that novice director energy about them? Well, you know what, what, when I started with some of those guys, uh, I was a novice myself, you know, Taylor Hackford, I did his first feature. I did, but you know, Andy Davis is uh, one of his first, we did a horror movie together after he did Stony Island. By the way, you want to see an amazing film about, Blues, uh, his movie Stony Island that he they made for three hundred thousand dollars in nineteen seventy eight. You take a look at that film; it's stunning. Uh, but uh, you know, I've had I've had been very fortunate to be picked by by first time directors, and um, you know, um, I was incredibly impressed with with the Wachowskis because. They were on another level, and 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 the same thing Bound. with yeah with Bound, um, Chris Nolan, and the and the, and the working relationship that I had with Chris and and his wife Emma and Guy, and uh, you know we we shot we shot Memento over twenty four days, and and we would work Monday through Friday, and then on the weekends, they would come to my house, Guy and Emma. And Chris and we would work on all of the scenes that we were going to shoot the following week, uh, and uh, you know, so that that was priceless. That kind of working relationship and the time frame and the, and the you know the lack of money, the limitations that you the financial limitations that so you 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 know you get you're shooting off the page. You know, you you're trying to figure it all out so you're not eating up the clock on the day. Uh, and I like that. A movie like Bad Boys for Life where you have all the infrastructure in the world uh, and all the toys and the bells and the whistles. Um, um, and, you know, and Bruckheimer was there. So that was, uh, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer uh, doesn't get the credit, you know, uh, that he deserves because as a, as producers go, he's the best creative producer I've ever worked with, you know? And, and so he's there and, and then he's got his infrastructure, all, all of the guys that are there with him, that have been with him for forever. And, uh, you know, so you feel like you're in great hands and, and they let you, you know, they let you be, do what you do. Um, and you know, and, and this one, Will, Will was a producer on it, and, uh, and a true, you know, a great, great guy to work with, uh, and uh, but also as a as a producer, as a boss, you know, incredibly generous to to all of us, you know, and and he learned from the best, you know, from from his days in Fresh Prince, and uh, you know, I walked into that makeup and hair trailer and. And and his people are still there. You know, it's like he'd been working with these people since Fresh Prince of Bel Air. You know, so I, I I learn I learn a lot about 
you know, I, I learned, you know, humility and pride and, and work ethic from, from Will and Martin, you know, that, that I tried to emulate. And I'm, I'm older than those guys are. But, but they took it, they took it away, way more serious than I did. You know, I, I, you know, I, I was just like, I had no idea. They, they knew when they were working on that movie, how the opportunity that was in front of them and, 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 uh, and they, and they worked really hard not to, but it slipped through their fingers. And I was just dumb luck. You know, I was just there and like, you know, and, and I, I just, along for the ride and I'm, it, you know, and it was a great ride and I, get, and I was very lucky and, and they've been good to me. You know, Joe, I grew up watching your movies. I think we all did everything. You know, you've, you've done so many films that we could all call films that we all grew up on. Um, I remember seeing Matrix for the first time when I was 14 with my father at AMC in Hampton, Virginia. Um, and there's there are moments in that film that will stick with us forever. And this is a really strange, random thing in that movie that I wanted to ask you about. But it was something that I always noticed as your character eats that steak as he's across from Agent Smith and he's making that deal. Um, there are some pretty relatively famous moments in films with food, like, you know, Pulp Fiction with the Big Kahuna Burger. That steak scene in The Matrix is pretty iconic. And I was just, and it might be a random question to ask you, but I was just wondering what you remember about shooting that moment. Uh, did you, were you just eating steaks all day long? What was that? It's a goofy question, but it's something I've kind of wanted to know because the steak looks so appetizing and the character is clearly using that because he goes, you know what? I'm going to sell out my friends and do what I'm going to do. Well, you know, as far as meat is concerned, uh, you know, I, I, I don't eat a lot of steak personally. Uh, but, but when I do, I cook it within an inch of its life. I don't want to see any blood anywhere. You know, it's like, you know, so that those, those uh, fillets and there were a lot of them. You know, um, but I I worked it out with the prop guy so that when we got into the coverage, I could, he, he set it up and gave me shiitake mushrooms because um, <laughs> it, it has the same texture as the meat. So when I was like different angles, there's that one shot where I'm holding I'm holding it on the on the fork. It's kind of like hanging there. Yeah, that's the shot mm-hmm. I'm talking. About. It looks rare too. It's rare. It's not rare. It's like you know, still alive. alive. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but I had to put it in my mouth. You know, I had to like, it had to chew it, and I had to swallow it. But uh, you know, as 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 I remember it, the Wachowskis, there was a lot of steak um, during lunch. We, you know, I I gave it to them, and. Um, <laughs> uh, but what I remember is, is that the curiosity, uh, Carrie Ann and Fishburne and Keanu uh, had all asked to come. And it was a night shoot. We, we were up. We, we shot that in Sydney, Australia. And this fa- fancy restaurant that's up like on the 50th floor near, near the opera house. So, you know, why we went up there, because you, you don't really get a sense of where you, you could be anywhere. You know, it's like, um, I, don't, I don't recall any kind of like POV shot of, of the of the skyline. Yeah, um, it's just the inside of the restaurant. Yeah, it's the inside of a restaurant. Um, but uh, I remember that, that 
that that idea and the, and the frustration. And, you know, I, I always have arguments with fans of that movie because they look at Cypher and they say, oh, you know, you were a traitor. And I and I like being years of, of being in show business and having to dissect and um be having liberal uh, uh, vision of, of the character I'm portraying. I, I'm always arguing on his behalf, on Cypher's behalf, like who wouldn't take that deal? If, you know, if you were, you know, if you were given an opportunity and a choice and then you decide you made the wrong choice, right? You take the red mm. pill and the, the girl that you love is in love with somebody else Um you know, you've gone through six or seven ones, right? And Neo's just another guy that's going to get his ass killed. And, uh, yeah. and uh, you know, and he's going, I've made a terrible mistake. You know, ignorance is bliss. Why shouldn't I, I go back to a world and pick the person I want to be? You know, pick the career I want to have and have no memory hmm. that... <laughs> I I betrayed anybody. Did I killed anybody? I'm just imagining Keanu eating steak with you guys at the t- at that restaurant. I, the whole cast is eating those steaks. Sounds incra- crazy to me. <laughs> you know, we we actually were in the in the parking lot, in the underground parking lot is where they set up lunch. That's where we ate. That's where we ate lunch. Joe, speaking of of the Matrix, obviously they're shooting. Uh, I think it's on pause, but right now they're they're shooting Matrix Four. And I know it, initially it might seem like a silly question: Would they bring back Cipher? But they're bringing back Neo and Trinity, who both died uh, in in the third film. So I'm curious: Have they reached out to you about Cipher potentially coming back? And if not, if they did, would you be interested in playing the character again? Uh, you, you know, yeah, I, I, I'd be interested. In- I, I doubt uh, they're gonna they're gonna be bringing me back. Uh, I've, I've I've lobbied for it. <laughs> Believe me, have you? I've sent yeah, I've sent little notes to Lana and and uh, <laughs> and, and asked her, uh, but to no no response. So, <laughs> Joe, tell them we need another steak scene. We need a, we need a steak scene again in the new Matrix, and you have to be there for it. Yes, yeah, I'm, Joe, all, I am, I'm all for it. Believe me, yes. So the answer is yes, and yes. I am curious about this though, Joe, to sort of bring it back to Bad Boys for Life. Also, um, a lot of times with these franchises, the fan bases clamor for another story. Um, you know, and and as more time passes realistically we look at them and we just say you can't recapture that magic you know or you're not able to um but then you know new directors come in they bring their vision and bad boys for life ends up being a huge hit you know but at the same time you end up having people like a fan base that's clamoring for something like the goonies to come back after 35 years like what is the secret to now you're talking uh, <laughs> like why can't a franchise how come some can come back and some should be left alone what's the difference between the two well, I don't think there is a difference. I think every, you know, if they've got the will and the money uh, um, to, to put this, to, to put it together and they push the bullets, it's high risk, man. You know, um, it's catching lightning in a bottle. And look at all of these, these sequels that they make that just fall by the wayside, but they just continue to try to do that. And I think the algorithms know something that we don't know uh but but you have to deliver because because we as an audience 
We've got our sleeves rolled up. We've been waiting 15 years. So they better deliver. Otherwise, uh, you know, we, we will be brutal. Uh, and, and, and bad boys delivered and spades and it introduced the franchise to a whole new audience. Um, and, uh, and Martin and, and, and Will were at their level best. And, you know, and we're in love with those guys, you know, as an audience where we just, we just love them. And, and, and the writers did them proud. Uh, you know, so it was great. It was absolutely great. I was, believe me, I was shocked it was that good. I was absolutely floored. And we saw it at the premiere, you know, at the Grumman's Theater. Uh, and I had my family there. Everybody had all their families there. It, it, it was like getting, working in a factory and getting a gold watch after after 25 years of employment, you know, we were there. <laughs> it's a good way to look at it. Joe, I'm going to wrap it up with this. Um, you know, growing up, I was mentioning, I, was, I loved your films. Uh, I was diagnosed with OCD when I was 14. So I've, I, I, I've, I've followed your work in regards to mental illness and, and the stigma surrounding mental illness. And I really do appreciate everything you've done with it uh, over the years. It's it's really oddly funny. I've definitely used WUSA in real life to actually calm down. Um, I was just curious if you could just speak on real quick about the idea of speaking out about mental health, the stigma surrounding it. And obviously a character like Captain Howard, you know, he is obviously dealing with anxieties as well and obviously deals with them in his own ways. Do you ever utilize things your characters use in your real life? Have you ever actually done Woosah like by yourself? Well, I'll tell you something. I, I did a film uh, called No Kidding Me Too. And uh, the United States Army uh, invited me to Iraq during the war to bring the film there because they had a high high level of, of, of uh, completed suicides you know, something like 20, 23 or four a day. And and their research was telling that was first tour of duty, first deployment within the first six months of deployment between the ages of 18 and 21, all Anglo-American males. That's who was completing their suicides. So I, I was at five different bases over eight or nine days and they would do wusa. They would all be yelling, screaming <laughs> at me, you know, three, four, five hundred guys and girls out in the audience on these army bases. And they were all screaming, wusa, wusa, pulling on their ear. So, <laughs> so it, 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 it was fantastic. And the idea, you know, listen, especially now, everybody thinks that the whistle's going to blow in three weeks. And everybody goes back to work and it's life as usual and that's just not going to be the case and 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 the first responders that are going to be traumatized by the yeah. emotional havoc that they've been put through that they've not been trained for um and uh and god forbid we get a second wave of of this virus because we just you'll go back to uh business as usual but the idea it, it, it always struck me odd when, when I finally, as a result of uh, the 9-11 trauma, that, that when, when 9-11 happened, something occurred inside my psyche that kicked up all of this emotional dust from, from yeah. unresolved childhood traumas that I never dealt with. And, uh, and, and then being diagnosed with clinical depression 
and and feeling that relief that it wasn't my fault, that it wasn't a character defect, that that there were other people that felt just like I felt. And the idea of, of sharing that information and being open and talking about it with like-minded individuals so you feel less alone, um, I, I think is a you know great opportunity for people to understand that we're all in this together. And and that and when I say we, I mean we humans that that globally we've got to work together, you know. Because because uh, our lives depend on it. Well, Joe, we love you so much. <laughs> We're huge fans of your work, uh, your career, and we really do appreciate you taking the time in the midst of all this craziness to come on and talk about something as distracting as movies, because we rely on them, you know, to to make us feel empowered and and special. And, and we love all the work that you've done. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank to you, Joe. Us. Thank you all, yeah. gentlemen. And uh, thank you. My best regards to you all and stay safe and keep your distance. <laughs> we'll do. Exactly. Same to you, Joe. <laughs> thank you, Thanks, sir. Joe. Take care. Bye, Joe. Bye-bye. Obviously, we want to thank Sony Pictures Home Entertainment and Joe Pantoliano for coming on the Roblox podcast. I want to let everybody know that Bad Boys for Life, uh, his latest uh, chapter of the Bad Boys saga is available now on VOD. Uh, make sure that you guys go and check that out. You've heard us rave about it before. You can also go back and listen to our interview with the co-directors, uh, Bilal and Adil. We talked to them at the beginning of the year, uh, right when that movie was coming out. They're a lot of fun to talk to. Uh, we have talking points, a lot of news. We're going to go over some of the delays and announcements, and we're kicking off with it's breaking news for us. By the time you guys listen to the show, uh, you probably might have heard this already, but it's a pretty major thing. Jake, what are you hearing? Uh, Scoob, the Warner Brothers uh, animated film with Zac Efron, I believe, um, okay. has taken the, the Trolls route and has opted out of a theatrical release and instead will go uh, straight to VOD, which I think is incredibly smart for a movie like that. It's very smart. But again, that's just another film that's going against that NATO agreement, you know, um, where so many studios are holding up uh, to their end of the bargain, that unspoken uh, agreement to maintain their theatrical window, the animated ones and the family friendly ones seem to be skipping. So, you know, we talk a lot about when everything gets back up to normal speed and blockbusters are competing for uh, space at a multiplex, that it's indies that might suffer and it's um, midsize or mid-budget movies that might suffer. It's starting to feel like family movies um, are content to become streaming options because a, I'll tell you, it's super expensive for a family to go to a, to a movie. Um, so if you're giving them a chance to see something like this all together, yes. So it's Trolls, uh, it's Scoob, Artemis Fowl, you know, skipping its theatrical and going to Disney+. Plus. These are family movies, and it makes me wonder if we're going to see more family films uh, go to streaming services instead of going to theaters. I find it interesting the choices of which ones they are putting on VOD in this particular uh, fashion, right? So yeah. Trolls and Scoob, I, I feel like, are films that... Again, I have no. I mean, this is just a, a a feeling, but I don't think either of those were going to be gigantic box office um, sure. films. Uh, I, I I mean, again, I'm sure Trolls would have made good money. I'm sure Scoob would have made good money, but they weren't films like you're not seeing Warner Brothers move Wonder Woman to VOD. You're not seeing them move Tenant to VOD. You're not seeing you know. It, it just look at the choices they're making. I still 
am against the idea of this. I do not like the idea of a film going straight to VOD that was supposed to open on, on its theatrical date. I still think the movies deserve to have that theatrical experience. Um, I think even something like Trolls probably would have been a fun theatrical experience for kids. To, you know, I, I, I'm just thinking about, from a kid's standpoint, what you said is very interesting about the money uh, and, you know, staying at home and watching them with a full family. But then you got to think about all those cool, like, field trips that kids take on on the weekends with their friends to go to like a kids movie or whatever. I, I, those were things that I loved doing as a kid. We're, we're going to the movies with my friends in big groups as a kid. So I, I do not like these moves, uh, particularly the trolls move and the scoob move on a personal level. I think they should be delaying them. I get from a business standpoint, what they're doing, they're capitalizing on people being home. And I completely understand that. Um, I get, listen, I get it. This all comes back to Jake and I's argument about logic and, and, and reality, right? Uh, this is the reality. We're adapting to the reality. This is a movie that serves and works better at home. Uh, and, and it's going to work like that way. You're not going to see Wonder Woman go that route. Um, just, you know, for me, it's kind of a weird thing. I feel like if you're putting your movie on that format, you're almost going like, that's ah, whatever. Just put it there, see what happens. Yeah, but and you bring up a point that I never once even thought about, dude. But you're a hundred percent right. You're training another generation of kids to not anticipate movies yep. at the theater. And young kids, and, and, young and, kids. Yeah, and they're already. Yeah, let me but, tell you, but it just depends on. I mean, because couldn't you say the same thing about Netflix? And the, and the reason I say that is because when when the last dance ended on Sunday. My first thought was like, God, I can't believe I have to wait a week for it to come. <laughs> and it's because like we've sort of been trained just by 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 Netflix. But like this will pass and sure. this will be over and we will go back to to the way things were. Because right. cause kids kids films sort of the like box office receipts on kids films for me fall under the umbrella of kind of uh, like faith based films where I always find myself surprised by how well they do. Yeah. Like a like a kid kid movie comes out and I and it opens to like sixty, seventy million dollars and I go, oh my God, like did that many people went and I go and I go, Yeah, yeah, kids went yeah. kids went wanted to go see it. So well, I think families. Uh, you're, families, you're, you're yeah. looking at about three people per, you know, trip to the movie. Right. Yeah. Minimum. Yeah. And, so, and, and and that's the thing, I get it. And like and like to Jake's point though, I'm sorry, Jake, you were making you're finishing your point. I'm sorry. No, yeah, ahead. I mean that was basically it. So I think we will go back to that because kids' movies at the theater are, are kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. Yeah, I just I don't know. For me, I think it sets a dangerous precedent. Um, I feel like but but at the end of the day, I understand it. Like when I when I reviewed Trolls on the air, I was like, listen, I get this. If you're a family and you have five, six, seven people at home, that's a steal for 20 bucks for 48 hours. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a steal. So I get the adapting uh, the adaptation process of what these movie studios are doing. My worry is that how obviously Universal started it. Now WB is following suit. When how much further is this going to go? And once we do get back to normal, like, will these movies go to VOD like this still for certain titles? And I feel like that's a very dangerous precedent to set, in my opinion. Five times is the number of times I've tried to get Brendan to watch Onward on Disney+. Plus. No interest. But if you went to a theater, <laughs> you would watch it. No, no, no. But uh, that, that, that's a great point. I got to be I, honest. You look like at the opening box office. It didn't really seem like that no, many people wanted no, to go no, see no. it anyway. But Onward is, an, is, is, is kind of a weird example because it wasn't that great. But, but I think the idea of a movie being in your home gives you the ability to say, oh, I'll push it off and get to it whenever I can. Sure. There's something about that appointment 
timing that gets you out of the house, that gets you into a social situation, that gets you into a theater where concessionists are working, they're making money. I mean, I, I just, I don't want that to go away. I want, I want that to still be an option. And what, we've discussed this before. Jake, you bring up Netflix. Netflix to me is a different situation because Netflix is its own thing, right? They're, they're, they're still adhering, trying to put things theatrically. The major theater chains aren't, aren't working with them on that. So Netflix has kind of their own branding. They're making movies for Netflix that go to Netflix. Some of them go theatrical. But these films, Trolls and, 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 uh, and Scoob, were theatrical films designed for the theatrical experience and designed to have big crowds. And I think the picking and choosing of certain ones that might not do great in box office, again, it's an opinion, to go to VOD is a little disservice to that. And again, I'm not, I'm not the studios. If you're listening, I get what you're doing. It's a business decision that is absolutely brilliant because you're going to make a ton of money off of it. I completely get it. I just don't like the precedent it sets for future. That's all. All right, all right Kevin, <clears throat> let's talk about Tenet. <laughs> really? Yeah. What's Tenet? I, I, no. I, just to, I just wanted to give Gabe, Gabe a heart attack. We all got right. very specific don't talk about Tenet instructions this week. <laughs> some, important, uh, some important appointments, say that 10 times fast, uh, have moved back even further. I want to run through them very quickly. Uh, the Batman, Matt Reeves' film with Robert Pattinson was going to come out June 25th. Uh, 2021. It is now October 1st, 2021. So most of these are affected because productions are currently shut down. So these movies would, they'd have to race to hit their release dates. They're just not going to happen. Shazam 2, uh, scheduled for April 1st, 2021. That is now going to be November 4th, 2021. The Flash, which we know Andy Muschietti was working on because we bumped into him while we were in London. Yeah, uh, we did. Has gone from July 1st, 2022 so now June 2nd of 2022, that's kind of interesting. That moved forward uh, by a month and probably is reflected the fact that Muschietti is working on it. So he's could be scripting it right now or fine-tuning that, but they haven't started shooting that yet. Uh, right before we started recording, it was announced that In the Heights, uh, the adaptation of the Broadway musical, has been moved back a full year uh, to summer 2021. Kevin said he was talking to John Chu, and John Chu told him it wasn't even finished yet. So Yeah, that, he said they were almost done with it, but, but I mean, it wasn't finished, and I was just trying to get his opinion on it. But Because I, I, I have this theory that a lot of these, not theory, I just have a thought that a lot of these movies that are being pushed aren't just aren't done. Like, I mean, the, the post-production, we know that James Gunn, obviously, uh, is in a different situation where he, didn't he, like, move his films into an edit studio before everything happened, and he's yeah, able Mike to... Yeah, Mike Flanagan just said on Twitter he did the same. It's interesting right. how many, to your point, how many filmmakers kind of saw what was coming right. and made a point to bring in all of the tools to their home. Like Mike Flanagan, yeah. someone asked him if the second season of Hill House was going to be delayed, and he said no, because I have all of the editing and post-production equipment in my home, right. and I'm just and working he, on it now. You know who's doing it? Guys who came up through the indie system who right. cut all Ooh, their stuff good themselves. Yeah. All those point. guys. Yeah, like, yeah, like, like Spielberg, I mean, as much as we love him, he would not probably be able to edit a movie in his home because he probably doesn't, he's not an editor. How dare you, no, sir? No, I'm being, I'm being serious though, but no, but Sean makes a really good point. Like there are, like I can't imagine the James Spielberg Gunn's, covering the Mike over Flanagan's. Right. Know. Yeah. Although, Ryan, when I did the interview for The Post, Harry Kuhn of The Leftovers told me uh, that they very quickly edited scenes on the set that day in a tent so they were able to go in and see finished cut. That's crazy. Where Spielberg was uh, was rifling to get to a, well, then, an award season release that's crazy. date. Then maybe Spielberg is like a brilliant well, editor. He, he's not doing that with West Side Story. Right. I think that's too much of a big production. The Post is kind of like a, a play. Like, I can see Edgar Wright at home uh, editing Last Night in Soho. That that just makes sense to me that sure. he could be home doing that. Or, I mean, but James Gunn... not doing that, Dune. 
I will say, though, that the idea of James Gunn being in his home editing a a massive film like Suicide Squad does seem crazy to me because that film is so big. But I guess this is an interesting question um, to ask. These filmmakers have a lot of time in their hands now. Nolan, obviously, you know, with Tenet and James Gunn, all these different movies. Do you get worried that they're going to be at home so long that they might start thinking of the film differently? While if they have more time to sit at the edit bay and actually make decisions rather than rushing towards a deadline. And and this is, I'll just speak for me personally. I'm the kind of, and Jake's the complete opposite. I'm the kind of person that works better towards deadlines. Um, I get my, I get the most creative in my mind when I know I have a deadline to reach. So I like to work towards the end of a deadline rather than, I mean, I'll prepare far out, but I will not actually like physically get to that work until I kind of reach that deadline because it helps me prepare knowing I have that kind of rush to get to. But with some of these filmmakers, I wonder how their personalities are. If you're sitting home, do you start changing your movie based on what's happening? Think about it. If you're watching the news, if you're watching the news and you see the story about the coronavirus and the emotions that are going on in the world. Do you start shifting your story kind of because your mind is also altered based on what's happening? I think they have to adhere to their script or their yeah. storyboards. I think they have to trust what they had out there. The only thing but, I could see is if Nolan was like, what if we went in reverse and then forward again, but <laughs> right. then reverse one more time? That sounds then, like an ambitious idea. Then everyone applauded. Hold on. I'll ask one more question. We saw, we all saw a uh, quiet place too, before we, before everything happened. All it's three true. of us did. Uh, and we did an interview with John Krasinski, which we are obviously holding until September. Oh my God, we haven't even aired the Krasinski interview. Yeah, <laughs> when that movie, that was the last time Jake, Sean, and I were actually physically together, um, and we had a great right. time. Now, um, now Kevin and I hang out together all the time. We just don't invite Sean. This, this is true. But I guess here's my question. Oh, that joke made me feel so bad. <laughs> I couldn't so even qu- get all the way through it without feeling oh, bad. Wait, I know, I know your question. It's a good one. Well, so a Quiet Place Part Two is post-apocalyptic. Yeah. Does, does Paramount and John Krasinski go in there and change any of it? Do they add a note? You can't do they take add- out the post-apocalyptic aspect no. of a post-apocalyptic movie. I know. My point is, so think about the how raw we are right now, right? As a, as a, as a world, as a country, emotionally, where we are right now. Um, September rolls around and that movie hits. It's kind of a weird thing to see empty streets, people not around. Again, I am not saying they're going to change it. I'm saying, do you think but there was it, a it thought process? It feels apples and oranges to me. I remember when Collateral Damage, was that the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie came out after yeah. 9-11? They, yeah. It was about terrorism, and they pushed it back, but I don't think they cut anything out of it. Here's I mean, the they, thing. they I killed think the, the Spider-Man teaser trailer. That's the only thing I can remember. If The Mist was coming out, I'd feel a little bit more cautious about releasing The Mist. That feels a little more in tune. The Krasinski one, because I'm thinking about scenes that happen in the movie, doesn't feel like it's going to coincide with what we're dealing with but i get it you're, you're making an excellent point i mean like paramount clearly moves it to september but i just wonder like if theaters don't reopen till mid-july or august is that a kind of movie people like that okay, here's the real question i know gabe's saying to move on here's the real question kev says mid-july because he's he's thinking of 717 <laughs> paramount pictures they not i'm not saying the movie has to change but paramount pictures do they decide this is not the right time to put a movie out like this after yeah, this Yeah, they could do that. Sure. That's, I guess, they so that's could, the they could do Yeah, question. they could always do that. 100%. How do you market it? How do you market it? Like with, with empty streets and stuff. It's weird. We will find out. A lot of Emily Blunt. I'd put Emily Blunt in front of every trailer yeah. and, uh, and a ton of interviews. Whether right, really she's fast. in the movie or not. Don't cut these, Gabe. I want to bring them up. Okay, we have a new headline uh, or a new title for Venom. Which is also moving. Venom was coming in October of this year, uh, but shortly after Morbius 
uh, moved back to March of 2021. Uh, Venom has also jumped from October to uh, June of 20, uh, yeah, June 26th, I believe it is, 2021. Uh, it is now going to be called, and I kid you not, Venom, Let There Be Carnage. And for some reason, I think about Let's Be Cops. Like, that's the first thing that jumps to mind, that Jake Johnson uh, movie that they made from a while back. I, I don't know. Here's the only thing that I find interesting about the Venom sequel. Uh, that means that the MCU Spider-Man movie that was due to come out in July 16th of 2021 is absolutely going to move. Have they even started shooting it yet? Well, no, they haven't. They were going to uh, shortly before all of this shut down, which makes me think they have a script because they were about to head into production. But if the Venom film uh, is moving to June of 2021, there's no way Spider-Man comes out in July 2021. We already know that it's Tom Hardy and Woody Harrelson. We know that Andy Serkis is directing it. Um, now, because they did pick a date that's after Morbius, I wonder if some stuff happens in Morbius that sets up the Venom movie as Sony tries to connect those worlds even more. But we're now getting to the point where films that were supposed to be coming this year are now pushing back to uh, even more than a year away from now. So it's the the further wrinkle of the of the release date schedule. And Which finally, is what we were saying earlier. It, it's not going to be like we're getting a bunch of great movies next year. It's just that everything's shifting. Like, it's, yes. it's going to be two years before we get another Mission Impossible. It's going to be two years before we get another Jurassic Park. Like, all those yeah. movies we were supposed to get next year, we're going to get in 2022. I'm still, find- a little, I'm still a little worried about, worried about December, to be honest. Like, there, it, it's too stacked. It's too much going on. There are too many movies coming out. I mean, I know December is always a big month, but there are massive films dropping week by week by week. And I don't know how the theaters are going to keep up with IMAX theaters and different theater chains. I mean, you got Dune and Top Gun coming out around the same time. I just don't understand. I don't think Dune, Top Gun 2, I don't think, I don't think Dune's going to happen in December. I really this, don't. Th- this year is not settled yet. I, <laughs> I just um, don't think it will. I want to see Dune and Gabe's flicking me off. But I, I, listen, I am all in on Denis, man. I am all in, and I want it to happen. I just can't see. Is Dune even done? How are they going to finish it? I'm more fascinated in what the Oscar season is going to be. I honestly don't know. Because, I mean, Venice says they're going on, and I have no clue how. Italy is in worse shape than almost any place. When is the the Venice Film Festival? Yeah, but for the longest time, the Cannes Film Festival said that they were going on, and look what happened with that. I talked to a friend of mine today about Toronto, um, about whether Toronto is going to happen or not, because Toronto hasn't yet postponed. Right. Try to imagine going into one of those venues in Toronto. No. Uh, if they maintained a social distancing, like try to try to imagine going into a oh. the Roy Thompson Hall. Those things are clusters uh, under the guise of social distancing. No, I mean for people who are listening to our show who don't know what this place is, it's a gigantic theater with a balcony that fills hundreds and hundreds of people. It's where I saw Joker. It's we saw where we saw a lot of films at at TIFF last year. It is right. Like that's an interesting visual, Sean. Like that theater is packed. You can't even walk through the streets of Toronto during the festival. My point being, in a normal situation, when you're just lining up to get into the second show of the night, it wraps around the block so many times that you don't even know where the line begins or ends. And now everyone's gonna have to. They can't for logistical reasons. They they cannot return to normal in situations like that. So we were talking to somebody today about this and like the idea of like these movie studios with these hundreds of millions of dollar films. You you can't. uh, That's the other part about it. They're they're not going to release these movies if theaters are only at half capacity. 
Yeah. They can't fill I them. feel like I've said that for the last three weeks, and now the Rousseau's <laughs> say it, and they're like, you're absolutely right, because Jordan Anthony all, Rousseau said it. Jake, I actually always said you were logically correct. I just said that I was more hopeful on it. That's all. Also, Gabe, so about Jake, Jake just mentioned uh, who our secret guest is. Nice oh, job, shit. Jake. <laughs> That's fine. We already did it. Let's get to our final uh, news of the day. There's a new Hunger Games prequel movie coming out. Uh, no release date yet, but the or the cast... But the director, Francis Lawrence, uh, is going to be coming back to the Hunger Games franchise. He'll be directing a prequel that is about, um, I keep wanting to say Professor Snow, but it's not Professor Snow. It's, What's that guy's name? King uh, uh, Snow? President, President Snow? President Coralatus Snow, no, that's right. I have right. a flower from him right here. I see that. Very he nice. Good visual. Snow, yeah. So we were, and, we were having a weird, de- not a weird debate, but but I we were talking about it before we started recording. And I said, isn't that a weird plot for a movie because basically you're making a movie about a fascist a fascist when he was a child and and not to like throw out extreme comparisons but like you would never make i mean this is a fascist character who has no problem killing large numbers of people to like to to progress his like his government ideals and i was like you wouldn't make a movie about like a young hitler but you were you made the comparison to like there there were movies about a young darth vader Yes. Which then sort of made me go, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. But, and I can't remember how, like, because I, I wasn't a massive fan of the Hunger Games movies. Like, at least with Darth Vader, like, he had a redemption, and so we have ended up seeing good in him. We don't yeah. end up seeing good in Snow, dude. Like, he's just a horrible, horrible person, so. right? right? So no. I still yes. don't feel like it's quite the same. It's not like, like, with the prequels... For Star Wars, it was this tragedy of this young man who was good and fell to darkness but was able to come out of it. With this movie, it's basically like, here's this really horrible murderer. He was a kid once, and here, look at all these things that happened to him. To Jake's point and to Sean's point mutually, basically Vader is way more famous than Snow, and Vader was a much more interesting backstory. I don't know that you could tell people, oh, you want to watch a a President Snow uh, prequel? I mean, if if someone said you want to watch a Vader prequel, I'd be like, yeah, of course I will. I mean, thank... Uh, I mean, Attack the Clones happened. Think, oh god! Did you guys hear what they might call this <laughs> this prequel? Though? Don't, don't, oh. Sean. I hear the working title of it is Sleet. Uh-uh. Wait, I don't get it. <laughs> Before the snow. Oh, snow! <laughs> that's really good, President Sleet. That's, that's a really Sleet. good one. I was going to go with flurries. And, and, and then the sequel to it's going to be called Hail. And, and it'll get worse and worse. Yeah, and worse as it goes. Yeah. All right. Listen. I, I, will, we t- I will say this about yeah. Hunger Games because Francis okay. Lawrence is returning. And I want to give him a shout out because I think he's a great director. Uh, phenomenal director, actually. Um, and I think Red Sparrow was a very underrated movie if you haven't seen it. Was it. Good. Um, yeah. It was very good. There's a, a moment I, that I wanted to mention when I saw Catching Fire. I think Catching Fire, my wife Lauren and I will agree. It's one. Of, it's such an underrated movie. It's a great film. Is that the second happened. one? It's the second one. That's the one on the island. It's the one where oh, Francis one. took over. Francis yeah. took yeah. over directing, and then he did. I think Catching Fire is like this movie that exists in this major franchise that is an underrated gem of a film, um, and so much so. One of the things I loved about it, if you got the chance to see it in IMAX. He did this really cool thing when Jennifer Lawrence's character is entering the games and she's being lifted up into the world oh, of the yeah. games. Yeah. He he shot everything in the Hunger Games in 65 millimeter IMAX, the same cameras Nolan uses for his IMAX shots, and the rest of it was shot 
in the in the regular widescreen format. So as the movie goes and you see Jennifer Lawrence being lifted up, you actually see the aspect ratio on your on your screen go like this. And the entire image blows up. I just thought it was a clever, clever idea. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because I feel like that name, Francis Lawrence, being attached to this title makes me excited. We were discussing earlier about Andy Serkis being the director of Venom 2 being the reason why I was excited about it. I don't necessarily care about watching a President Snow prequel, but with Francis Lawrence directing it, I feel like if he's doing it, it's 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 going to have some power to it. I think he's a great director who just happens to work really well in franchises. What else did he did? I Am Legend... Which was, you know, which is a very good movie. What else did Francis I Lawrence do? I love the first half. Like that's such an like I'm so conflicted about that movie. I love the first half of that movie. Yeah. So much. Can't watch the dog dying. That's always tough. But could then, you like, imagine it, it, it divulges into this like special effects, bad CGI extravaganza? Yeah. I just I oh it's such a. I've only I, seen it, it one time. I so hardly great. remember it. It starts so great. Also, yeah. think about I Am Legend coming out today. Those trailers of empty New York City. When he when yeah. he's walking through Times Square and you see the Batman Superman thing in time in uh, poster. That I mean that honestly that feels like the type of movie where if it was coming up for a September release they would just say nah nah yeah nah, because yeah because sorry. that's that's virus based as opposed yeah. to right. a Quiet Place is aliens yeah yes all right yeah. so we talked a little while ago when we had Chris Ray on uh, and also when we had Michael Shannon on. That the South by Southwest Film Festival, which was supposed to be held in March of this year, uh, obviously got canceled and a lot of filmmakers were scrambling to figure out what they were going to do next. Some of them are still figuring out their uh, VOD distribution. Some of them are holding out for theatrical windows. Uh, We want to point out that the Prime Video Presents uh, series where Prime Video, Amazon Prime said they're going to showcase a lot of their films is about to launch. It's going to launch on April 27th. Um, So people who have Amazon Prime Video will be able to watch um, some of the titles for the filmmakers that agreed to participate in the uh, Prime Video Presents South by Southwest 2020. So circle April 27th as an opportunity for you to see some new films coming. I also wanted to bring up this interesting story with Neon, uh, the studio behind Parasite and I, Tanya, recently. They have a new documentary uh, called Spaceship Earth, and we were reading about it before the show started. Uh, It played at Sundance. And it followed these people who uh, allowed themselves to be contained in a biosphere for two years. Like Biodome. Kind of like Biodome, yes, with less Pauly Shore. Uh, so probably Some not as Pauly good. Some Pauly Shore. I like Biodome. So do there's I. nothing wrong with it. No, there's nothing wrong with it at all. But this is not it. Uh, this is Spaceship Earth. <laughs> and uh, they're <laughs> going to show... Trying to this off of I'm trying to keep us uh, on, on track here. Uh, Neon is going to allow it to be distributed. They're, they're really playing around with how that they distribute this. And we found this to be really interesting. They're going to use uh, some drive-in theater movie screens to allow people to sort of see it and still practice social distancing. Uh, They're going to set up pop-up projections in select markets uh, so that you'll be able to watch this documentary on a screen that gets put up. There will be on-demand outlets also. They're also going to let uh, places like independent movie theaters, museums, bookstores, nonprofits, some restaurants, uh, they're going to be able to uh, rent the film essentially at a $4 cost, a really uh, cheap cost, not the $20 rental that you would get, but $4, and it's going to help uh businesses that have been severely uh, impacted by all of these economic restrictions lately. So kudos to neon for figuring out a, not only a way to get a movie like this in front of more eyeballs, uh, something that did well at Sundance, but to also figure out a way to use those funds uh, to help some of the businesses in some of these markets to um, get some revenue back. They're going to take all of the rental proceeds and put them to the location that works as the 
theater for it. And Gabe is texting me something. So I will say they are letting them offer it for rent in their sites. Yeah. So oh, essentially wow. like a, a restaurant would allow, like the restaurant would rent it. Right. Yeah. And then cool. Or the restaurant would let people rent it at their site. This is on, going well at the site. Yes. Got okay. it. Okay. Very we're, much. We're, so. Listen, we're, we're all <laughs> this. We're adapting just like everybody else is. So I actually, Hope keep Gabe keeps this in because this is all new information that came out today. So yes. Um, so anyway, look up Spaceship Earth. Uh, search Neon's Spaceship Earth. Find out if it's going to be playing at a place near you, and if you want to support a local business uh, while also checking out a cool documentary that you haven't yet seen that does not have Brendan Fraser. Brendan Fraser in Biodome. Uh, no, it was it was uh, Paulie Shore. Uh, and was Stephen the, uh, Baldwin. One of the Baldwin brothers. Yeah, Stephen Baldwin. Stephen Baldwin. Yeah. Stephen Baldwin. That's right. And also, uh, what was Brendan Gabe- Fraser in? Brendan Fraser was in Sino Man. Sino Man. That's right. I kind of get those two mixed up. Sino Man (laughs) would be a great, great commentary movie to do. Yeah? I love Encino Man. That's one of my favorite. Oh my God. I, love I that swear movie. to God, if that's our first Real Blend commentary, <laughs> I'm going to be sick that day. Are we going to do the Real Blend commentary? Not if it's Encino Man. My pick one. Gabe is you, giving you, the thumbs you up. You won. You did Social Network. I know. And I want to do the commentary for it. By the way, I went down a gigantic Fincher rabbit hole this week Ooh. and last week. I. Social Network is one of the greatest movies I have ever seen in my entire life, and it is. It was my, it was my number one of the decade. I was Kevin, are you ready Girl. for this? Fincher's better than Nolan. That's not true, though. I mean, that's okay. It's just not true. I I like more Fincher movies than I like Nolan movies. I it's interesting. Fincher is. I mean, I would put Fincher and Nolan in the same level, but I think Nolan's a better filmmaker. I put him in the same. I. I yeah. Gone Girl, by the way, is, is Jake one is of thinking. Fincher's masterpieces, too. It's terrific. Jake is oh. thinking. I'm trying, Jake. To think who, I'm trying to think who I get more excited about when they have a movie coming out, and I think I gotta go with Nolan. Yes! Hey, Jake, it's you know there's a movie coming out in July called Tenet. July 17th. Look. All right, this week in streaming. I was asked not to get into it about Tenet with you. We want to bring up the fact that uh, there's a comedy show coming to Netflix on April 21st uh, called Middle Middletitch and Schwartz. Sean, uh, is, there, is there someone that's involved with that that was recently on Real Blood? I'm glad you asked that, Jake. That's a really great uh, transition for us to point out the fact that Ben Schwartz uh, joined us for the Real Blood podcast for a bonus episode where we talked Sonic uh, primarily, um, but also used it as an excuse to just ramble through uh, all of his experiences in Hollywood. He's had a, a number of really great stories, obviously from uh, Parks and Rec and a lot of the improv stuff that he does. And this is why I'm pointing out this Netflix special to you, because it sounds really, really interesting the way that they shot this. I'm really curious to see how it turns out. But but after you check that out on Netflix on April 21st, do go back and listen to our 90 minute conversation with Ben Schwartz because it was really fun. Yeah, he was amazing. And what I love about this special they put on Netflix, I haven't seen it yet, but it's three hours of completely improv material. So apparently yeah. it has like mess ups and all these things in it. I'm super excited to see it. Um, I also, this is not in the show notes, but I just want to briefly say that Jake and I and Sean have all watched The Last Dance. And I, I know it's not a movie thing, but I just oh. wanted to mention how cinematic this show is and how it's playing like a film. And if you're, if I'm not a sports person, but I'll tell you right now, I was so riveted. I didn't know anything about this particular story. It's called The Last Dance. Michael Jordan, Bulls documentary about the final season with the Bulls, the dream team, Pippen, everybody. Uh, I'm telling you right now, if you're not, if, if, if you find yourself to not be a sports fan like me and you sit down and watch it, you're going to be as engaged as you would about any movie you watch. It is 
phenomenal storytelling. I mean, even if you're a sports fan, but maybe like didn't grow up with it, because I mean, I obviously I live in Chicago now, so like people here are just going nuts over this thing. But I grew up, I was so a kid good. in Houston. I was a Rockets fan when 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 Jordan was in his prime, and in the two years that he left, um, that those were the two years that the, the Rockets won back to back champion. I mean, he came back for the tail end of the second. Anyway, um, but so like in 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 theory, like Jordan should be like my enemy, right? Like the Bulls should be my enemy. But that is a fascinating, a fa- so well put. And it, it falls under the same umbrella of what we say about sports movies all the time, which is that you shouldn't have to be a sports fan to enjoy it. It's just, it's well, so well constructed. Truthfully, those be- the best 30 for 30s. And oh. this isn't, is this a 30 for 30 or is this is just its own it's thing? It's an ESPN documentary. Thing? It's not okay. a 30 for 30. But there are but some the- truly great, you don't know Bo, uh, the June 14th, 1994, the, the OJ one. Well, and the um, best ones don't, they don't really... You don't have to like sports. No, it's the like drama. Them. It's yeah. the drama. And for people listening to our show internationally, I know we have a lot of audiences listen to our show internationally. Yeah. Um, if if the what they're doing is they're putting it on ESPN every Sunday for the next f- four weeks, two episodes a night, and then five hours later they upload it to Netflix International. So oh, the, interesting. at, at the beginning of the show, it says ESPN and Netflix presents. So the international markets, um, I'll, I'll double check that, but it goes up in five hours later after That's it airs. So people who are, can watch it internationally, but it is truly, truly remarkable. There's a moment where Ewing and Jordan were commentating oh. on this UNC game from 82, where Jordan made his first, uh, won the game in his freshman year in that final shot. And just hearing those two comment and then Larry Bird later talking about the Bulls losing to the Celtics in the 86 championship, but that he saw God playing yeah, on said, the court. He, he said that, wasn't, that wasn't Michael Jordan on the court. That was God dressed as Michael Jordan. To me, that was the court of the night. What I love about those oh. stories, too, when you hear and Kevin, you mentioned the Ewing uh, Jordan won from George. It's Georgetown versus UNC, which it's Jordan's first game winner from UNC in a championship game. Yeah. When we talk about the three of us as nerds, like certain movie experiences that we've had, we can almost dictate, you know, to the moment, like what theater we saw, specific movie in, where we sat, what we had. But when I hear Patrick Ewing, where he's like, the two defenders came over to this side. They had blocked off one guy. So this guy was over here. He, he rolled knew off everything. the pick. Jordan was free off the... This is like 40 years ago. And they yeah. remember the final play exactly where they were. And then to cut to Jordan. And Jordan's like, nobody knew I was open. They had no idea I was going to take that shot. And I was like, how do you remember the... But if you put it in the context of what we do, we have those exact same... Yeah, memories. I'm going to say, we could tell like junket stories. I mean, I, yeah. could t- I, I will probably forever remember... Kevin and, and myself being nervous to go in for Harrison Ford for Call of the Wild and yeah. me like walking out and like Kevin walking in and like yeah. we had like a like a silent signal where I kind of gave him like dude it's the okay have fun get a picture like enjoy kind of like yeah, yeah, I will yeah. forever remember that little like I remember Kevin was on my right and I was on the left yeah. like it's those those I only, I'll never forget Joaquin stuff. leaving the room oh, yes turning around and saying, I only uh, dare was, I say we had fun <laughs> we had fun the only reason I bring up The Last Dance on our movie podcast is because I saw a tweet after the show ended, and I know we have to move on, but I saw a tweet when the show ended that someone said that even though I knew what was going to happen when that second episode ended, I was wondering where they're going to trade Scottie Pippen. Oh. Like, like, we know the story. Yeah. I did not know that Pippen was underappreciated. I didn't know he was the 122nd highest paid I didn't know that. I didn't know that he player. was the sixth on the Bulls. Unbelievable. So what what blows my mind about the documentary is, and the reason I bring up that tweet is because the mo- the show plays like a movie. Jerry Krause is the villain, and there's and there, and there's so many ways to look at it. It plays out like a story you would watch on. It, it, it's unbelievable that a guy 
would actually have the audacity to want to get rid of Phil Jackson and get rid of these players after they won five championships. And just the idea of that going on behind the scenes and what they were able to achieve with that bull s happening behind the scenes is just insane to me. I Unbelievable. I emphasize to you guys how hated that team was. That team was hated. Them by or else. the or the um, Pistons. Oh no! Everyone hated oh, the Bulls. The Pistons, everyone hated the Bulls because they were but so like the, good. But, but the bad boys of Detroit, like weren't they? In yeah, that maybe episode three, right, Jake, where they're going to show uh, Jordan yeah, getting like, beat up. Yeah, because Robin yeah. was Robin. Robin was with Detroit, and uh, and and once again, that's another great thirty for thirty. If you get the chance, it's called Bad Boys of Detroit. Uh, they were they were pretty hated too, but maybe it's just because they didn't they didn't win as often as no. I mean, they won big, but they didn't win like like no, the Bulls no. won. They always How ran cr- to the Bulls. How yeah. crazy was it hearing Michael Jordan's mom read that letter about him having twenty dollars yeah, in his yeah, bank yeah. account? Now the real do you guys think that um they're going to get into uh the death of Jordan's father? Oh yeah. I think they, they have, have to. to. They have, they have to. to. That's what year did his a... father pass away? Ninety four or three. Oh, so it's before this ninety seven, ninety eight championship season. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but they're yeah. using oh. this last season as like a structure to go back and tell his story. But the but the story of of the murder of his father is uh, it's, it's pretty it's, it's very interesting and it's, it's like unsolved. Country right? road in North Carolina, wasn't it? It's 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 solved in the sense that like there are I think correct me if I'm wrong. I was reading a Tribune article about it the other day. Like there's there are police reports that say here is what happened, but it was handled in such a way where people should have asked more questions. The gambling oh. thing was a was a big question too, right? That was that's a big a, that's, part that's of gonna it. be a whole that's gonna be a whole yeah. there's so much I mean someone asked me like did this need to be ten episodes and and at first I went, well I don't know. They just need to cover and then I started listing all the things they had to cover and I go, Yeah, yeah, I think it needed to be ten episodes. Cool. Anyway, so just to go show you, uh, you have no clue what you're going to get when you press play on an episode of Real Blend. <laughs> hey, it's <laughs> a great show. Been, yeah. yeah, we've been all over the place today, including The Willowbees coming to Netflix on April 22nd. Who's seen it? I've seen the trailer and I did the interviews with the cast. Hey, how was that? Um, you know, it's it's here's what I'll <laughs> say. Based on the trailer, it has a very cool, like, dark, um, lemony snicket vibe to it. Oh, so okay. it's basically these kids live with their parents. And the parents are kind of assholes. And so they're trying to figure out how to get rid of their parents so that they could like live by themselves. And so they send their parents on a vacation so that something bad, they like devise this vacation so that something bad can happen to them. Okay. Um, it's got, it's animated, but it's got a, it's got a really cool all-star cast. Um, and, uh, and you know, we've been doing these sort of zoom at home junkets. So I got to talk to them yesterday. Will Forte, Maya Rudolph and uh, Terry. Did Cruz, you mention McGruber? I didn't mention McGruber. I did not. I actually do like McGruber. I do like McGruber. What's that thing he says? The upper decker? I don't know if you remember that movie. So anyway, yeah, it's it's kind of it's it's sort of um limity snicket, kind of a uh, like a little bit of a darker edge to it. Um, so so yeah, I I, I uh, you know it's for kids. All right, I want to mention that uh, Extraction is also coming to theaters. I know we can't talk about it; it's under embargo um, until a little bit later this week. Um, what we can tell you is that it stars Chris Hemsworth, uh, directed by um, one of the guys who worked in stunts with the Russos, Kevin. Sam, Sam Hargrave. Yeah, right, and he Sam was Hargrave. actually he was the new he was the new Asgard truck driver in Endgame. He was in. Oh, um, was it really? <laughs> Sam Hargrave actually is awesome. essentially the David Leach or the Chad Stelhesky of the MCU. Like he's he That's was. Um, 
He's a stunt guy. He's the, that's why all the stunts in Extraction from the trailers you guys have all seen are pretty intricate. But um, yeah, he's like been with the Russos in the MCU for a long time. So it's like they gave him this, you know, they gave him a chance to do this uh, based on his work. And I think Stelhesky and Leach, David Leach, are two guys who completely understand action, which is why John Wick looks so good, because they understand and come from that stunt background. So that's why Extraction, I mean, it should be interesting to people if you're a fan of like the John Wick films, because it's Mm -hmm. a stunt coordinator, it's a stunt guy like Leach and Stelhesky, who is now directing. Uh, I mean, David Leach was was Brad Pitt's stunt double in Fight Club. I mean, like it's very cool to see these guys transition into filmmaking. And Extraction is an adaptation of a, a graphic novel uh, called Ciudad that Joe Russo uh, and, and Anthony worked on together. They worked on the story, and then Chris Hemsworth is bringing that character to life. Uh, I can let you guys know that uh, because we had Alicia Silverstone and Joey Pants this week, we uh, pushed back our celebrity interview with, as Jake mentioned, Joe and Anthony Russo. Was uh, I really the first their... person that mentioned it on the show? Yes. I could have sworn 100%. that we... Nope, no oh, one mentioned it at all. At all. It was Jake who mentioned that Joe and Anthony Russo will be making their triumphant return to the Real Blend podcast. And anytime we get an opportunity to sit down and geek out with them, it is uh, a highlight. So look for that episode dropping next week. That brings us to the blend game for this week. And we are playing hashtag best picture blend, which means uh, of all the films, if you collected them all and put them into one category and uh, listed all of the movies that have won best picture over the years, you have to pick which one of those uh, would be your favorite movie. And what I realized while doing the research for this particular blend game is that there were far more movies that I love that didn't win. <laughs> See, that's what I texted Gabe and I said, you know, there really aren't that many best picture winners that I like. St- like, I would argue, like, I, at first I thought, oh, this is going to be hard, but it yep. was really like maybe six or seven movies that I would put under the, like, into the folder of, like, yeah, I love three, three. for you. Yeah, like, it's, I had three. This really wasn't that hard. And, and there's a lot of them that I like but I'm not going to necessarily yeah. put them at the top of a list of things that yeah. I love. And in fact, there's a ton of movies that I love that were runner ups. And I know Someone... we had, believe me, if you've listened yeah. to one episode of this podcast, you know that we are um, not the biggest fans of the Academy in terms of the things that they choose. Uh, there's a lot of times that movies that we really, really love uh, end up coming in uh, second or third place. So Jake of the six that you circled, uh, which one did you fall on? Look, I, I really did not want to choose this one because I feel like it's such a cliche answer. Mm-hmm. But there is no movie that won Best Picture that I love more than The Godfather. Okay. I, 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 it goes into, into, that, into that, that folder of perfect films. It is a film that is kind of like, like structured how I handle certain real life situations. I feel like as a whole, and this is such like a like a cliche thing to say, but like, I feel like men have structured their moral code on this movie. I think it is perfectly written, perfectly directed. Each performance is pitch perfect. Um, it's got some of the greatest shots of all time. I, you, you could like, if we were all together, all four of us, and you said like, Jake, like knowing it's three hours long, Jake, like we're going to turn on the Godfather right now. Do you want to watch it? I'd go, hell yeah. Like I would absolutely watch in a heartbeat. And you know, it's such like a, like cliche film fan answer, you know, like oh, I I, I love The Godfather. You know, it's kind of up there with um, with Citizen Kane. Like where I feel like sometimes I feel like people just say it because it's the thing that you say. Um, in fact, I saw a poll one time that The Godfather is the movie most people lied about having seen, right. which I thought was interesting. 
But I genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, love The Godfather. And of all the movies that have won Best Picture, it's the movie that I love the most. All right, I'm going to mention the movies that The Godfather beat uh, that year. It won over Cabaret, Deliverance, The Emigrants, and Sounder. So, yeah, clearly that year I wouldn't have had a lot of problems with uh, mm-hmm. with what took yeah. home Best Picture. Um, my pick uh, of the three that I was going to choose from, I went with Titanic. And oh, I, interesting. Yeah, I went with Titanic. Um, that was a weird sound I made. <laughs> it was a little strange. <laughs> Titanic is the first movie um, that I went back to see as many times as Kevin will see a Nolan film. I think I ended up seeing it seven times. Wow. And it was the movie that I just kept bringing people back to because I needed them to see it on the big screen. You know, like every time I saw somebody new who hadn't seen it yet, I couldn't wait to bring them to the theater to go see it. And it kind of fascinated me th- of how it it was two totally different films. Like it was like a, a great period romance with two charismatic, you know, leads who had incredible chemistry together in the front half of it. And the historical elements, too, of the Titanic and how great Cameron was with the details. And then the back half is a disaster film, you know, and you're just as compelled in both of those situations. And it's only in years past as you get uh, to find out more about it, like you start to learn the technical aspects about what Cameron put into it. But but first and foremost, he's an amazing storyteller. Like, he's just a brilliant, brilliant storyteller. And I felt so that was the first time that a movie won that I felt vindicated by its win. I was so happy that that movie won because I think at the time it was the highest grossing film. Mm-hmm. It, had, it had dominated the box office charts for years. That was the first, I used to get Entertainment Weekly and their box office chart was always in the back. Yeah, I, I love that. Go, I, I remember, remember that. going to the back of Entertainment Weekly every single week to still see Titanic up at the top. Wasn't that a good year though? Like what, what did it, I know it beat LA Confidential. Did All it beat right, The so Insider? Let me go see and through. So I mean, Titanic is, is still an incredible film. Oh, uh, no, honestly, I, I love Titanic. And I, I the, one of the things that bothers me is this, like, newfound, like, whenever a movie gets really popular and all of a sudden becomes cool to not like it. Right. It's like backlash where people try to say, they're like, oh, like, Titanic's not good. Yes, it is. Titanic is a great, great film. And also, Titanic's incredible. The, what are, like, the door thing, Bob, because, like, they establish <laughs> in the movie that he can't get on the door. He tries to get on the door, and the door starts to, like, so this whole big question of, oh, could he get on the door? They establish that he can't. Like, there is a shot where he tries to get on the door, and they can't do it. So well, I'll, tell you, work. I'll tell you also, there's one scene in it that's so incredible. You don't, you don't even really notice that it's doing it at the time, but there's a scene early on with super old Rose, and she's talking to the boat crew, and the boat crew is showing her a sketch of what will ha- what would happen with the boat, Oh, it takes on this much water and then it's going to go up there. But because the, the ass is so heavy, it's got to snap. Right. And then that's where people are going to go. And you forget that. But then when you get to the end of the movie and it's doing all those things, yeah. you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. He mapped it out. Yeah. And so I, and then we always throw a personal aspect to Titanic in it. Um, it's my father. I, I've talked about my dad on the show. He didn't love going to the movies. Uh, he's He was cheap, cheap, notoriously cheap and just didn't like paying for the movies. He didn't want to go to the theater. Um, but we took him to see Titanic, uh, because I was like, you gotta see this on the big screen. It's, it's one of the best movies out there right now. And we went and, um, it's the scene where, uh, Rose and Jack are, are climbing onto the back of the, the very back of the boat and the boat's going yeah. all the way under and they're going to hold their breath. And literally you see the two of them standing uh, yeah. on the boat when it goes under and it, it submerges and it gets really quiet. And my dad looks over at me and he goes, 
great movie. Like, as, yeah. loud, as loud as he can say it. And that was like Ebert giving something four stars. Like, he just didn't care for it at all. And uh, that, that had to be the I greatest vindication it. for you as both a son and a movie fan. Like, oh. all right. Yeah. And, and yet, at the same time, I was still like, dude, shut up. <laughs> so you want to the movie, shut up. You said you saw it seven times. Do you remember, like, I remember when that movie was out for so long, at some theaters started doing intermissions, and you would, like, did you ever have an intermission moment with that movie? I don't think I did. No, I don't think so. Because I remember, like, I remember the AMC Patrick Henry, they would, like, uh, after the movie had been out for a long time. Didn't it stay in theaters after it won Best Picture or something like that? Oh, I dude, can't remember. It was in theaters for months. Right. And I remember, like, at some point, people had seen it so many times that the theater decided, okay, we'll go ahead and give you a, ba- a break in between. <laughs> And I remember they they start, remember because Jake and I have discussed this before. I'll never forget going to Blockbuster because I pre ordered the the two VHS yes. and I remember it came with a gift card uh, in, uh, inside of it. And I remember going up to Blockbuster, riding my bike up there the day that the movie hit VHS, and I was so freaking excited to get it. And I'll never forget it because on the DV on the on the VHS case, uh, in order to keep the two tapes inside the case, they had that like little sticker. Yeah. You had to peel away. And then, so always that. The you have to be careful. You have to be so careful. Right. But it always stayed there. Like, I'm, my, my VHS always had the remnants of that sticker. Yeah. 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 I'll never forget that. You, okay. Here's, here's, and I think we've talked about this before. Do you remember where it split? I don't remember where it split. No. Hold on. We're, yes. It was right after the hand and the steam, right? No. When did it split? It's whenever they tell the captain that the boat's going to sink. And he goes, Oh, you, you, the boat can't sink. And he goes, Oh, I, you know, it's made of steel. I assure you it can. And then the captain, Captain Smith, looks at Ismay and says, "I believe you may get your headlines, Mister Ismay." And really? It cuts to black. Do you that's think where, that's Cameron where the two... makes that decision? Yes, I think Just... so too. Because that's a, that's the per- like if you were to split that like on sure. HBO, like like over two nights, that would be the perfect place. Because that's right, but like it's just enough of like. The boat's starting to sink. We're like, like shit's going down, but like, right, but like, but not enough so that like it interrupts the flow. This yeah. might be a really interesting game to play at some point. We can call it like split blend, and we find a moment in a movie where we ha- where we would actually put the split if it was two tapes, like where you would end the film in the middle to pick up. Because Cameron Ooh. obviously had a had a thought process about it. He was yeah. like, like Jake just said, there's a reasoning why he split it there. He could have let it go another minute. Could have let it go another five minutes, probably. Probably enough tape on there to do that. Where did they split heat? I, I I remember he was a two a two taper. So I don't, so I don't me- think I I don't think I saw Heat till I was on DVD. Where did they split Meet Joe Black? Oh shit, I couldn't tell you. That was a two taper. I, 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 I didn't I didn't watch it enough times. The you know where tapers. they split Kill Bill? It's when they decided to make it two films. <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> Kevin, what was your pick? Um, so my pick is it's actually interesting because uh, a lot of the things you were saying are, are are playing into kind of my thought process when I went through this game. So first of all, in Jake's pick, I actually my first pick initially was Godfather Part Two. Because um, I was wondering if you were going to pick that. The only reason I was going to go with that movie is because I think Godfather Two is the most. I think it's the. I think it's the most perfect film ever made. But I also feel like I love the story of it going up against the conversation that year. Oh. The same director had his has two films up for Best Picture. Oh, okay, let me pause you. Titanic went up against As Good as It Gets, The Full Monty, Wow, Goodwill Hunting, and L.A. Confidential. Ooh, that's, good year. A good a year. year. All right, sorry, that guys. is stacked. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, so. To me, that that was an interesting one to look at, and I was also looking at other films. But the one I ultimately went with was uh, is the reasoning that Sean was just giving about the personal idea was Return of the King, because it was the it was the first time I ever felt excited about a Best Picture win in my lifetime. Probably one of the only times I ever felt excited about a Best Picture win because 
you know, when Forrest Gump lost to uh, beat Pulp Fiction, I wasn't invested in those movies at the time. I was only, you know, 12 years old. Return of the King was the first time I ever cried during an action scene because the action scene was so unbelievably epic that I just could not handle it. Like, my brain had no way of understanding. It was the final battle, and there was a moment where, like, these elephant characters were sweeping people off their feet in this battle, and it was one of the most insane visual spectacles I had ever seen. I watched all three of them in theaters. I never read the books. I was never a Lord of the Rings fan, but Peter Jackson brought, yeah, I know, but Peter Jackson, <laughs> Peter that Jackson, but Peter Jackson genuinely brought something to the table that I had never seen before. Um, that trilogy was very special to me and it, and it was not, it, it was a trilogy that I'll never forget. It actually had more of an impact on me as, as a film fan than like films like star Wars and things like that, because Lord of the Rings, I, I just never seen a filmmaker do what he did with that film. Also, I grew up weirdly enough in a time where my, one of my friends was that we were allowed to watch R rated movies at his house and his dad had dead alive um, on, on DVD or, or VHS or whatever it was. And that was a Peter Jackson film. I think it was called Brain Dead and other, other markets. Extremely violent zombie film. There's a scene where somebody takes an, a lawnmower, picks it up and goes towards a bunch of zombies and just cuts them all up. It's pretty wild. Um, but just to see the, the growth of that filmmaker, I was like, oh my God, the same filmmaker I watched when I was in sixth grade that did that zombie movie is now doing The Frighteners, which I loved. And then moving on to films like Re- Return of the King, Lord of the Rings, Two Towers. Return of the King was arguably one of the most important moments I have ever had in the cinema. Uh, just, I remember sitting at AMC 24, that scene came on at the return of the King and my brain had no idea what to do except for just to cry. Cause I could not believe what I was watching. It wasn't cause I was sad. I was just blown away by what I was experiencing. I'd never seen anything like it. So, with that factored into the year, also Two Towers and Fellowship did not win, right? They were, I think they were nominated yeah. each time. Was Jackson yeah. nominated each year? I think, I think so. so. Yeah. And, yeah. And he didn't win till Return, right? Correct. And Return was kind of a, let's give it to the trilogy, almost. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because I am so against that mindset um, of like giving a movie an award just because, oh, like, you know, let's give Denzel best actor for Train Day because he probably deserved it for Malcolm X. You know what yeah. I mean? Like the, it's that it's that like make good. It happens um, a lot. It does. But I do think Return of the King actually deserved to win best. It's picture. your it's your favorite of the trilogy on its own. Oh, hands down on its own. Return of the King is a masterpiece, but I also love that particular story. So to see Return of the King win, to see Peter Jackson take that stage after all that work he put into it, after monumentally changing cinema with what he was doing with visual effects, that was hands down the best feeling I ever had watching an Oscars. That and Wally Pfister winning for Inception probably were two of my favorite highlights ever. So Return of the King beat, and tell me if you still feel that it should win. Lost in Translation. Uh Uh-huh. Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World. Yep. Which is vastly overrated, by the way. Yeah. People don't talk enough about that film. Overrated Mr. or underrated? Underrated. Underrated. Oh. Yeah. Is underrated. that Wolfgang Peterson? No. Yes. yes. Or Peter Weir. Oh, maybe Peter Weir. Wolfgang no, did another it's, water it's movie. Peter Weir. Oh. No, it's Peter Weir. Okay. Uh, Wolfgang Peterson did Poseidon. Poseidon? And okay. something else, too. Uh, Mystic River mm-hmm. was that year. And Seabiscuit was that year. 100% Lord of the Return Rings. of the King. Yeah. Okay. I think Mystic River is a phenomenal film. I think it's the best thing Eastwood's ever I mean, touched it won as a best, it, That one actor and supporting actor that year. You know what I really wish is that Peter Jackson didn't do The Hobbit. 
I wish Del Toro did it. Or if Peter Jackson had more time. I mean, one of the reasons that he had, one of the reasons that Lord of the I Rings was as practical. I wish had. he had more time. <laughs> I mean, he had like years to, to to get prepped and to make all of like um, you know the the creatures as practical. You know, obviously we're all a big fan of practicality on this podcast to make them as practical as possible. I think because of what happened with Guillermo, they kind of just threw Jackson into the Hobbit. He didn't have time, which is why he relied so much more on CGI. And also, that's a 180-page book, dude. There's no reason that needed to be three different three-hour films. Like, yeah, that it, just, was, it, it didn't need to be. That was business Hollywood at its best, right? That was like, that, yeah. that, that story did not need, need to be They had to go stretched. to the index yeah. to, to, to <laughs> pull more stuff out. They literally <laughs> went to the index to pull out more shit. Yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you right now, though, like the visual effects that he achieved practically in, in the first Lord of the Rings trilogy was just I mean, just the little things they did to create the height differences between the hobbits and, and everybody else. Like they would have them stand in like dig, uh, a dig digging holes. They would dig holes and the, and the actor would stand in the hole. That way his height differential matched up to Ian McKellen when they looked up at Gandalf. And it's like the, the behind the scenes stuff is so wild. I mean, think about also think about it like this. Think about when you see like a back, the back of a cart or a back of a, a moving uh, ve- or vehicle, I guess, what would you call those back then? But if you're looking at the back shot of Gandalf and a Hobbit, you know, Gandalf is towering. And I always I, I don't know how they did it unless they actually took out the seat for the actor and had the actor sit on the floor. So his head was proportionate to the height of what Gandalf would look like. But those were all these little things that 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 essentially Peter Jackson had to figure out from a practical standpoint, because necessity is the mother of invention, right? So how do you make this look as realistic as possible and play with some visual effects? I think The Hobbit suffered from, like Jake said, too much CGI. There's an idea of, you know, CGI being a tool in your paint box. And that's exactly how, that's why Jurassic Park still looks better than all the Jurassic World movies. That's why Lord of the Rings looks better than The Hobbit films. It's because they took the time to find it practically and do it in camera and then blend whatever CG they could. Also, you have to give credit to the state of the art, state of the art effects on motion capture. That was, the, that was like really early on. I know Zemeckis messed with it early on as well, but Andy Serkis's motion capture on that film was incredible. All right, we got to wrap because if you can see on the YouTube video, uh, the sun is about to come in and mess around with my video because <laughs> it's setting here in North Carolina. So let me go to audience picks. Kimberly Sue, uh, she says Titanic. Disappointed Lion says Parasite. Parasite is your choice for favorite Best Picture winner. It just happened. That's <laughs> like saying my favorite meal was the uh, chicken fried chicken I had last night. Like, hey, don't really say fried that? chicken. I'm not knocking fried chicken. I'm knocking Parasite. Uh, Aiden Erdahl says the Deer Hunter. Man, alive. That's a Which, by the way, Deer Hunter movie. is very similar to Titanic. The, exactly what you mentioned about Titanic. Titanic, the first half of the film is like, you know, the building up, the story, the oh, love yeah. story. Deer Hunter, mm-hmm. the first hour and a half of that film is like a wedding. It's normal life. And then they just drop you into that Vietnam. That like, is that, a sentence I did not expect to hear. I didn't either. I was waiting Deer for Deer Hunter is a lot like Titanic. No, no like, that, that should be the sentence that we use to promote this episode. Instruction. It makes sense. No, yeah, it makes a total sense. I get what you're saying. It says West Side Story. Uh, Shelby Jones picks one of the ones that I was, and Clint Tomerlin both actually picked one of the ones I was going to go with, No Country for Old Men. Uh, Shelby Jones says, No Country for Old Men. She says, No Country for Old Men is nearly perfect, but Casablanca is actually her favorite pick. Um, 
I'd still go with No Country for Old Men. So for next week, I was talking to, to Gabe really quick. We were having a conversation he and I earlier about the, like the difference between choosing our favorite movie that just so happened to win Best Picture and picking mm-hmm. our favorite movie that like we're like what it says to have won Best Picture. And we're glad that it won Best Picture. Mm-hmm. And the only one that for me that was competing in that because of the realm of that would have been something like Silence of the Lambs, just because okay. the fact that like a horror movie about a cannibal won Best Picture over a year after it came out. Uh, I just love that uh, that a movie like that won Best Picture. And its leading actor has less than 20 minutes of screen yeah. time that won Best 16, Actor. 16. 16 minutes. 16 yeah. minutes won Best Actor for 16 right. minutes on camera. For next week, uh, you can reach out on Twitter. And part of this is is building off of the t-shirt initiative that we're doing. Um, again, thank you guys so much for uh, participating in that. We're thanking you in advance for participating in our t-shirt initiative. We're going to play hashtag theater experience blend. And I'm going to throw out a challenge to the boys. Um, Let's try to come up with a story that we haven't told. Like, wait, wait, explain we, this. Wait, what, what does this mean? So you would share with us what would be one of your favorite theater experiences, <gasps> a movie theater experience that stands out as a memory to you. Now, I would argue that we've told a lot of really good yeah. stories. I got to think about some stories. I, oh. So and, and I even think we could say at the onset of this, like, OK, well, this one ranks really high. This, But if it's one you think of that you've told a lot of times and Kevin, I'll use as an example, like you go into the end game premiere, like you've right. told that a lot of times. Um, Jake, I'm trying to think of one that jumps to mind, but like, let's try to find some, Rise we can even say them at the beginning. Yeah. And say, well, clearly this one's important to me, but try, I'm going to try to find a really personal one. Cause I would argue that the three of us have like hundreds of them, like really, yeah. really good, memorable theater going experiences. So let's get creative. So hashtag theater experience blend. Uh, if you guys want to play around with this one as listeners, uh, use the use the email. Use realblend at cinemablend.com and send us like a paragraph. Give us a good explanation as to why this theater experience was important to you. And again, what I'm what I'm circling it back around to is how important being in a theater is to the host of this show, uh, to the producer of this show, to the listeners of this show. Uh, we exist uh, because of the theater going experience. And so let's keep the hashtag going for theater experience blend and give us some really cool stories to read on the show next week. Um, we get to a review. This one's coming from Tough Gong 2324 who calls this a must listen for fans of cinema and says the guys have a great knowledge and understanding of film and their laid back style is easy to listen to. They have had awesome interviews with actors, directors, and the people they interview seem to be genuinely enjoying the conversation with these guys, which is a testament to how down to earth they seem in my top five of must listen to podcasts. Thanks a lot, guys, and keep up the great work with two Huge thumbs up. So thank you very, very much. I would like to, uh, as we say goodbye to you guys for another week, plug the t-shirt. Again, the link uh, to that uh, sale is going to be in the description of the YouTube video that you're potentially watching or will be in the show notes for the podcast that you're potentially listening to. Uh, I will iterate once again that this is a limited sale going until uh, May 8th and that 100% of the proceeds are going to the uh, Will Rogers Foundation, which goes to uh, theater distributors. Not 100%. If you buy uh, through the portion of that goes to produce the shirt is going to go to the people who are printing it. They're only going to print the shirts that are ordered. And then everything that goes outside of the cost of the shirt uh, will go to Will Rogers because we want to just do something special for people in the theater. Uh, going and we make no world. money off nothing this at all. Nothing. Yeah. Nope. 
Um, so we'll talk to you guys next week where we're going to have the interview with Joe and Anthony Russo uh, talking about extraction and all things uh, fun Marvel. I'm you can sorry I ruined it. On social media uh, at Jake's Takes, at Kevin McCarthy TV, and at Sean underscore O'Connell. We'll talk to you guys soon. Stay safe out there. Stay healthy and tenant. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.